good to see y'all, and I'm glad to get to talk about this tonight. It's kind of a hairy topic, I know, but uh, well, you know, two weeks ago when I was out, Alan talked about how science and faith, Christian faith, are not mutually exclusive. How you can, uh, you you don't need if you've got a young person in your family that's thinking of going into a scientific field, you don't have to dissuade them from that because. You're not going to lose your faith by studying biology and chemistry and, and physics and those, those fields. Uh, those aren't antithetical to the Christian faith. In the same way, uh, a person who is a scientist can come to know Christ without surrendering their intellect uh, because those two, those two work together. Last week, I, I tried to show how God's Word, the Bible, is reliable. And we can have confidence when people come to us and say things like, well, the Bible is full of contradictions or, you know, the, what the Bible says about Jesus isn't true because it was invented by the church 300 years later. We can, we can say, no, that's not true. We've got the truth on our side and we can, we can make a, a skilled argument that shows that God's word is reliable. And, and those are the kinds of things that we think of when we think of apologetics. Those are the kinds of issues we've been dealing with as Christians probably all your life. I know all of my life at least once I first started coming around skeptical people. But what's changed in the last, I guess, 20 or so years, maybe more recently than that, is that more and more people are raising issues with Christianity that aren't necessarily intellectual so much as they are uh, justice-oriented and, and moral. So it's not so much that they think Christianity is untrue, although they might think that, but it's that they think Christianity is, is wrong that it's not good for society, that it oppresses others. And we're going to talk about, we're going to bounce back and forth between those two different categories for the rest of our study. So, you know, tonight we're going to talk about is Christianity anti-women. Next week we're going to talk about what God's Word says about homosexuality. Um, then we'll get into some more uh, intellectually based arguments. And then after Thanksgiving, we're going to close out before Christmas with a couple, uh, one about Christianity and racism and another one about transgenderism. So uh, we need to know how to answer these questions because more and more, these are the reasons people are walking away from faith. These are the reasons people are turning away from the gospel because they uh, believe that Christianity is actually a force not for good, but for bad in society, that Christianity is a source of oppression. Um, this is especially true for your people 40 and under, that those two generations that we're not doing such a good job of reaching these days. Uh, and some, some are also not necessarily leaving Christianity, but they're moving from evangelical Bible preaching denominations to those that are a little more theologically liberal because they want to keep Jesus. They want to, they want to still have the gospel, but they want to be able to say to their friends, now well, we don't, we're not bigots. You know, we don't, we don't accept what the Bible says about sexuality and gender and things like that. So what should be our response? What should be our response? Well, the first thing I'm going to tell you is going to sound counterintuitive. You may even disagree with me, but I passionately believe this. When we're talking to people who have these issues with the faith, we need to be able to find common ground with them. We need to be able to say, yeah, what you're telling me has happened in the church and still happens in the church, and it's wrong. We need to be able to acknowledge that part of the reason that people think that Christianity is anti-women is there's evidence down through the centuries and even today of churches, Christians, pastors doing and saying things that do sound anti-women. And so, for instance, when one of your non-Christian friends sends you a video of a preacher saying something that's offensive about women, like the, the preacher I could tell you about that uh, this is not something I'm making up, but 
uh, said, the reason why preachers have affairs is because so many preachers' wives let themselves go. Or, you know, somebody comes to you and says, yeah, when I was growing up, my parents told me I couldn't go to college because my job was just to you know, get married and make babies. Or, or somebody comes to you and says, well, the church I grew up in, there were teenage boys that were hitting on me and, and, and harassing me and maybe even assaulting me. And I was just told, well, that's the way boys are. Maybe if you just dress more modestly, you'd be okay. So when you hear stories like that, our job, our responsibility as representatives of, of the gospel is to say that's wrong is to say, that makes me angry. That makes God angry. That's not biblical Christianity. So why do I say that? How can we prove that? So what I want to do is kind of walk through seven uh, questions or, or charges, specific charges related to this that people often throw out. So one of them, the Bible is written by men, so it props up male control over women. This is, this is often said by people like this. Okay, well, how can you believe the Bible? It was written, written by men. Obviously, there was an agenda there to make sure that men always were in control. And, and I think one of the stories they cite is the, the first story in the Bible, the story of Adam and Eve. As it says in Genesis 2, Adam, Eve was created to be Adam's helper. For, for Adam, there was no helper suitable to be found. And then in Genesis 3.16, when God is pronouncing His curse on humanity, He says to Eve, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. So all that certainly sounds like God is saying that because of Eve's sin, uh, men should, be, uh, should dominate women and men should always be in charge and women are inferior. There's a problem with that though. First of all, the word helper in Genesis 2 doesn't imply any sense of inferiority. It doesn't imply any rank. Uh, and I, I, will tell you, I will tell you why. The character in Scripture who most often is given the title helper is God. And I've given you uh, lots of verses there to back that up. You can look them up if you want. But obviously God is not inferior to anybody. So helper doesn't mean inferiority. It just means a function. It's God is our help. God is our strength. I think anybody who has married a good woman can say, this woman is my help. This woman is my strength. I wouldn't be the same person. I wouldn't be the man I am without her. Um, and then the, the story of, of God's curse on, on Eve, when he says, your desire shall be for your husband. All right, so as much as I wish that that meant that my wife was cursed to always, in every situation, find me attractive... <laughs> No matter when's the last time I bathed, or how my breath smells, that is not, unfortunately, not what it means. So in Genesis 4-7, God uses the same term when He's talking to Cain. Remember, Cain is jealous of his brother Abel. He's plotting against him. God warns him. He says, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Sin's crouching at your door. It desires to have you. Same word, same verb. So it doesn't mean attraction. It doesn't mean that women are just in the spell of men, and so men are able to rule over them. What it means is, in the same way that sin wanted to control Cain, Within marriage, a woman's heart desire will be, I want to control my husband. 
And a man's control, a man's desire will be the same towards his wife. What God is saying is this is the reason why marriage is so hard. This is the reason why it's so hard to stay together, why it's so hard to get along. Because when two people get married, no matter how attracted they are to one another, no matter how in love they are, immediately that woman says, okay, I've got, I can figure you out. I can fix you. And the man says, well, I can tell you what to do and you can serve me. And what God is saying is because men are bigger and stronger because of your sin, it's usually going to work out in their favor. That's not the way I intended it. That's not the way I created mankind to be. But because of sin, that's the way things are. Do you understand that? This is not a pronouncement from God of, from here on, this is the way I want things to be. He's saying, because you're sinners, you always struggle to get along. You'll have this desire to control him, but he won't be controlled by you. And if he is, he'll be miserable. And if he's not, you'll be miserable. And, and there will always be this contention. Listen, if we, let me put it this way. Look at the first part of that curse. God says, he mentions pain in childbearing. I don't know personally, I know there probably are some out there, but I don't know any Christians who believe that it's wrong for a, a woman in labor to get an epidural or to take a pain pill for that matter. I think all of us would say, I know, I know when my wife was in labor, I was shouting for the epidural before she was. <laughs> So yeah, none of us think that's wrong. If there's a way to alleviate that pain, absolutely. In the same way, God's, this is not God's prescription that men should dominate their wives. It is, it is the result of sin. And if we, can, if we can overcome it, if a man can say, I refuse to follow through with my inborn desire to use my physical strength to dominate my wife, then God is glorified. And if those two people are able to, to live in harmony, God is glorified. All right, there's a second objection. Some would say, well, think about all the terrible things that happened to women in the Bible. And there are, especially in the Old Testament. I mean, if you're looking for it, it just stands out. So many stories of awful things happening to women in the Bible. But what you need to know, what you need to say to people who bring that up to you is, notice the Bible is reporting these events, it's not endorsing them. The Bible is listing history. It's saying this is what happened. It's not saying God approved. It's not saying it was good. And the reason why it's there, God is saying, look how broken you are. Look how messed up society is that these kinds of things happen. This is how much you need a Savior. This is how much you need redemption. And sometimes in Scripture, we see women get justice. And one of my favorite uh, examples is in Judges 4 and 5. So uh, you probably know the story of Deborah. Deborah was a prophet and she was the leader of Israel during a very crucial time uh, when they were being oppressed by the Canaanites. And God comes to Deborah and says, okay, I want to bring you victory. There's a man in Israel named Barak. I want you to recruit him to, to muster an army and fight against Canaan. And he does, and she does. Barak agrees and, and his opponent is going to be a man named Sisera. Sisera was a general Feared all over the land because his army had iron chariots. They had a technological advantage over Israel. There was no way Israel was going to win, but because God was on their side, they did. Now that's chapter 4 of Judges. Chapter 5 is Deborah's song. So it's a, basically a poetic retelling of the battle. And it's very interesting. It kind of gives you some insight on things that happen in the battle that the straightforward telling of chapter 4 doesn't give you. Well, at the end, toward the end of the song, she pictures Sisera's mother looking out her window, saying, oh, where's my son? 
Battle should be over by now. How, how come my son isn't home? And the women with her say, don't worry, don't worry. He's fine. I'm sure he's fine. He's just gathering the spoil with his men. You know how they are. Uh, a woman or two for every man. So what are they talking about? They're talking about battlefield rape. They're talking about uh, now that I've slaughtered all the Israelite men, we're just enjoying the daughters and the, and the wives that are left behind. And that's why it's taken them so long to get home. It's, it's there to give us an indication of the kind of man Sisera was. Now, who killed Sisera? Anybody know? Anybody? I'll be impressed. No, not his wife. That would, that would be good. No, uh, but somebody else's wife did. It was a woman named Jael. So Jael was the wife of a man named Heber the Kenite. They were friends, uh, Heber and Sisera. So when Sisera is fleeing the battlefield on foot, Jael sees him and says, come hide here. I guess her husband is out. He comes in, finally relaxes, goes to sleep. She takes a tent peg and a hammer and nails his head to the ground. And I love the way it says it in, in, in Judges chapter uh, 4. It says, uh, she drove the tent peg through his temple and into the ground, and so he died. I like that. Uh, yeah, I, I like It's very straightforward. And so I always look at that story and I think, you know, when a single Christian man says, what I'm really looking for is a biblical woman, you need to be more specific. <laughs> Some of us got it coming, I'm sure. So here's another objection. In the Bible, women are blamed for the problems in the world while men get off scot-free. And we have to admit there are preachers who tell stories in the scriptures that way, that make the women in the story out to be the bad guy. And sometimes women are the bad guy in the story. Jezebel, there's not a more wicked character anywhere in scripture than Jezebel. Uh, Delilah definitely was Samson's downfall, but he was a fool. He deserved it. Now, uh, let me give you a couple of examples of what I'm talking about, though. Again, go back to Adam and Eve. Historically, many preachers have blamed Eve for the fall of mankind. Yeah, the devil tempted the woman, not the man. It's this idea that women are more easily tempted. They're, they're, they're morally weaker, and therefore that's why Eve uh, took the fall instead of Adam. And yet when you look at Genesis 3.6, it says Adam was standing right there with her. She gave the fruit to her husband who was there with her, it says. How come he didn't speak up? How come he didn't object? And why did God, when he confronted the couple, why did God confront Adam first? I'll give you a better example. Story of David and Bathsheba. So many, many times this has been told as a story of a temptress who seduced a righteous man. Here's David just doing his best to live for the Lord, and then this woman just flagrantly puts out a bathtub in full view of him and, and, and seduces him. The problem with that is that's not what the Scriptures say. Notice when Nathan confronts the sin, who does he confront? He confronts David. What is the story he tells to David? He tells the story of a man who had a, a little ewe lamb that was his pet, and the rich man came and, and stole that lamb away and ate it. David is the rich man. The lamb is Bathsheba, and the poor man is Uriah, her husband. The blame is on David. It's not on Bathsheba. The blame is on him. When God punishes in that case, he's punishing David. He's not punishing Bathsheba. 
Bathsheba is never spoken of negatively anywhere in Scripture that I can think of. In fact, she's, she's one, of the, uh, one of the four women in Jesus' genealogy. And when God gives one of David's sons the throne after him, who is it? It's Solomon. It's the son of Bathsheba, not one of his other wives. Now, there are some who would say, well, you know, David was the king, and so Bathsheba had no choice. Essentially, we're talking about rape, because if she would have said no, she would have been killed. We can't go that far because we don't know. The Bible doesn't say whether she was a willing participant or not. I will say this. If I had to bet on one or the other, I'd say it's more likely that she resisted than that she lured him on, because again, God never blames Bathsheba. So, Yes, there are men who will use stories like that. There are preachers who will use stories like that to beat up on women, but it's not scriptural. All right, next one. Jesus only had male disciples, and that's the implication there is. Therefore, Jesus preferred men and women were second class to him. And it is true that the 12 disciples were all men. These were the, the 12 that he chose to train so that they could take over the ministry after him. They're the, the 12 apostles of the early church. They were the leaders of the Christian movement, the martyrs of the faith. But there were many women that followed Jesus. And let's think about how unusual that was. I don't think we appreciate this because in our culture, you know, women go to college, women uh, you know, sit under mentors and, and learn in all kinds of ways. But in that culture, a, a rabbi would have male followers, but not female followers. Luke 8, 1 through 3 says, Soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna and many others who provided for them out of their means. Remember that. We're going to come back to that. But even maybe even more relevant is the story in Luke 10 of Mary and Martha. And we often think about that story in terms of, you know, Martha's hustling around the kitchen and trying to keep things, keep everybody served and, and be on top of this dinner party. And, and Mary's just sitting there listening to Jesus. And, and it's often preached as if it's about, well, it's better to grow in Christ than to serve others. And that's not the point of the story at all. Not at all, because that's not something that's said anywhere else in Scripture. You want to do both. You want to serve people and you want to hear the Word of God. There's not one that's better than the other. The story is about the fact that, that Martha resents the fact that her sister's doing what a woman isn't supposed to do, which is sit and listen to a rabbi teach. And Jesus says, don't you understand she's doing the better thing right now? Yeah, serving me is great. Serving us a meal is fantastic, but she's, she's becoming a follower of me, and that's what I want. Over and over again, I, I don't have time. I could, I could preach dozens of sermons of the ways Jesus brought dignity to women that they didn't have before. So I'll just give you three uh, categories with two examples each, okay? I can't do less than that. So... He often, number one, he often uh, would point out a woman's righteousness at the expense of another of a man. He would often show how this woman is more righteous than that man. That just wasn't done. Again, uh, it was seen in the ancient world that, that men were more morally sound and women were weaker. And yet, we know the story of the widow and her offering, bringing her two little coins. And, and these, these men had come in and thrown in their big purses, 
Jesus said, she gave more than all of you because she gave all she had. Even better is the story of Simon the Pharisee and the sinful woman in Luke 7. Uh, This woman comes in and and weeps over Jesus and, and bathes his feet with her tears. And Simon is sitting over there judging him. I wish we had video of the moment when Jesus said to Simon, hey, I know what you're thinking. And don't you understand the reason she loves me more than you do is she's been forgiven and you haven't. And I'm sure that that meant Jesus never got another invitation to Simon the Pharisee's house. But this is the kind of thing Jesus did over and over again. A A second way he brought women dignity he treated them with a newfound importance. There was, a, there was a, a, a sense that women just weren't important in society. You needed a wife because you needed children, but you didn't see them as equal in terms of importance. And yet we see in John chapter 4 when Jesus and his disciples are in that Samaritan town and, and the disciples go off to get food and when they come back, Jesus is talking to this Samaritan woman. And it says they were astonished when they saw this because a man just didn't do that. But to Jesus, she was a person. She was important. Even better is the story of Mary Magdalene and the empty tomb. This is something I didn't realize until just a few years ago. I'd heard this story my whole life. But think about that story in John 20 of how the women go to the tomb and they find it empty. The stones rolled away. They run back to the upper room and they tell the disciples and immediately Peter and John run to the tomb and they check things out and say, yeah, it's empty. And then they run back. And Mary, by herself, goes back. And that's when Jesus comes out. And he calls her by name, Mary. And I'd, I'd heard that my whole life. It never really occurred to me. Jesus was there the whole time. Why didn't he make himself known to Peter and John? Why did he stay hidden until Mary came back? He did that deliberately. He chose to give her that honor. I don't think it's because she was better than them. God chooses because He chooses. But my point is, He deliberately chose a woman to have that honor, to be the first eyewitness. Didn't advantage Him in any way and made it less likely people would believe, but that's what He chose to do. He treated her with importance. And then a third thing, we see Jesus over and over again defending the rights of women, defending their dignity. Uh, The famous story in John 8 of the woman caught in adultery and Jesus Uh, chasing off or or actually uh, convincing that mob that was going to stone her to death that you can't do this. None of you are without sin. The unspoken thing in that story is, where's the man? She didn't commit adultery by herself, I guarantee. So where's the man who should be punished too? I don't have this one written down. I lied to you. I'm going to give you three examples. So famously in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said uh, if, that if a man looks with lust upon a woman, he's committed adultery with her in her heart. And we hear that and we say, oh, that's just ridiculous. How can anybody live that way? Think about it for a moment. You know, there would be no me too if we just listened to what Jesus said. If men just did what Jesus said and looked at women in the eye, treated them with respect, treated them like sisters, like mothers, like daughters. And then there's a little less less well-known, Matthew 19, when Jesus is talking about divorce law. The divorce law in Judaism at that time was was pretty liberal. I know that sounds unusual for the the Jews in that world, but uh, men had decided that, hey, Moses said we could divorce our wives. And so it had gotten to the point where, especially in certain schools of thought, man, if she burns the toast, if she... uh, 
if she doesn't look like she used to look, if, uh, if she's a little crabby in the mornings, if, uh, if I'm just not happy with her anymore, I can just write her out a certificate of divorce. Moses said so. Well, you know, in that world, that meant she was going to be destitute. Most likely no other man would marry her, and she couldn't get a job, and so what would she do? If she didn't have grown sons that would care for her, she'd have to beg, or worse. Jesus said, this is not the way God intended things to be. When a man comes together with a woman, they're, they're together till death do they part. You stick with your wife because that's what you said you would do. Again, defending the rights. We, we look at that today and we look at that in terms of marriage and divorce. And, and yeah, it, it applies to our current situation. But in the, in the context, it was really about you take care of the wife you married when you were young and you stick with her. Okay, so some will say, all right, I, I'll, I'll buy that Jesus was good and, and he brought dignity to women, but, but Paul wasn't that way. Paul, was, Paul, Paul taught that women are inferior to men. I've, I've heard Christian women say this. I've, I've had Christian women say to me, I like Jesus, but I don't like Paul. I don't know why you're telling me. I didn't. And, and I have, uh, on a more serious uh, note, I've, had, I've heard of Christians who use his teachings to justify a husband mistreating, maybe even abusing his wife. Well, you know, you got to stick with him. You got you to submit to him. And that's, that comes from Ephesians 5.22. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. And on the face of it, yeah, there's a whole lot of, of especially young people, especially young women who look at that and say, well, I could never be a Christian. That's, that's just wrong. Understand what submit means. Submit does not mean inferiority. Submit does not mean surrender your rights, surrender any say. It doesn't mean that the husband is always right. I wish it meant that. I'd love to be able to tell my wife, hey, the Bible says I'm always right. Then again, I wouldn't because I'm not. Let me show you why I know submit doesn't mean that. Luke 2.51 says that Jesus, when he was a boy, submitted to his parents. Was Jesus less righteous than his parents? Was he less knowledgeable? Was he less powerful? I don't think so. I'm pretty sure that Jesus as a boy could have turned his parents into goats if he wanted to. But he submitted to them because that was his role. That was the way things were designed to work. 1 Corinthians 11.3 says the husband is the head of a wife. It's one of several times that concept is mentioned in the scriptures. But it also says, and God is the head of Christ. Is that because Jesus is inferior to his father? No, but for the time he was on earth, he lived in obedience to his father because that's the way things were supposed to be during that time. And then let's not forget Ephesians 5.21. Just one verse before Ephesians 5.22, Paul says, submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. So that's the theme verse for the whole rest of the chapter. Paul is essentially saying, you're not going to have relationships that are healthy until you learn to submit to other people. Until you learn that your rights and your demands don't come before your relationship to that person. So when God is saying to a wife, submit to your husband, he's saying the same thing he would say to me when I'm trying to have a friendship with somebody. If I try to have a friendship with you, but I say, okay, we can be friends, but I always get to pick the restaurant. And when we're having an argument, I'm always right. And uh, if you ever make me mad, you have to apologize. I never apologize to you. You have to apologize to me. Well, we're not going to be friends long, are we? 
There's no friendship unless I'm willing to sometimes bite my tongue, sometimes sacrifice my interests, sometimes uh, say no to my desires so that the relationship will flourish. And what it's saying to a wife is marriage is not meant to be a competition. It's not your job to change your husband. It's not your job to dominate your husband. It's not your job to rule the house. Instead, if you want it to work, you will put we ahead of me. And you'll, you'll stop seeing this as a competition, but instead see it as, how can I make this relationship work and flourish? How can I respect this man and make him feel like he matters to me? And let's not forget, that's not where the passage ends. Because in, chapter, in verse 25, we read the command to husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So if you think the Bible teaches that a husband can abuse his wife and get away with it, if you think that the Bible even teaches that a husband can do whatever he wants and get his way at all times, ask yourself, did Jesus do any of those things to his church? No, Jesus lost everything for his church. He put his church first. To him, the church was everything. To him, the church was worth laying down your life for. So anytime I am insisting on my own way, anytime I'm uh, holding things against my wife and, and reminding her of how she hurt my feelings or made me mad, anytime I am yelling at her, anytime I'm pouting so I can get my way, anytime, certainly anytime I use any physical advantage over her, I am absolutely at odds with the teaching of God. The only time, the only time, that I am a biblical husband is when I am sacrificing for the sake of our relationship and for her flourishing. See, this idea that behind every great man there's, uh, there's a loyal woman and, and an astonished mother-in-law, I, I made up that second part, but that may be true, but you don't get, if you're a man, you don't get married so that your wife will make you great. Your job in marriage is to make her great. Just like she's submitting to you, you, she being married to you should make her more flourishing as uh, fulfilling God's purpose for her life than she would have if she hadn't married you. That's your job as a husband. Now think about how radical that was in a world where women were seen as property. You know, we look at this passage and we say, wives, submit to your husbands. That's crazy. Anybody in the first century would have read that and gone, well, of course, yeah. I mean, marriage isn't going to work unless that happens. And then they would have gotten to verse 25 and said, Husbands, lay down your lives for your wives. That's nuts. Who does that? And we've somehow reversed it. See, here's what I believe. Some of you may disagree with me. I know some teachers disagree with me on this. I believe that biblical headship, the husband is the head of the family, is not a privilege, it's a responsibility. I don't read anywhere in Scripture where the husband being the head means that he gets any special privileges. Nowhere does it say, because the husband is the head, he gets to always hold the remote control. Although I do admit, I usually hide it, so I, I, I know where it is and she doesn't. But, I mean, nowhere do I read, well, he always gets to decide what's for supper, or, uh, you know, we need, to, we need to cater to his every whim. And that's not what biblical headship means. In fact, that's the opposite of what Christ did for his church. Instead, I see headship as the ultimate responsibility. I think that I truly believe that when I stand my day of judgment before the Lord, I'm going to be responsible for my pastoring of this church and several other things, but probably more than anything else, 
It's what kind of a husband was I? What kind, what kind of a father was I? What did I do with my family? It's not that I'm responsible for their sins. That's not what I mean. It's not even that God would hold me accountable if they didn't come to faith. But did I do all I could? Did I do all I could to encourage them to walk the way of Christ and to flourish in every way? That's my responsibility. I, that's, God holds me accountable for that. That's what biblical headship means, I believe. And if you're talking to someone and they say, okay, but I still don't like this idea of wives submit to your husbands, here's what you can say. Would you like it better if, if Paul would have reversed that and told women, okay, you have to die for your husbands, and husbands, you just have to submit to your wives. Would that be better? No. I think that'll make the point. Paul uh, was, as far as we know, never married, and yet it's obvious that he had a great esteem for women. He respected women. Look at the last chapter of Romans 9, where he mentions all the leaders of the Roman church that he's giving greetings to. And these are his co-workers in Christ, and nine out of them are women. Again, that wasn't done in the ancient world, but it was done by Paul, because in the Christian faith, women mattered. So now we get to a tough one. Well, biblical ideas of, about gender roles limit what women can do. And yes, it is true that some Christians, including most Southern Baptists, are complementarians. What is a complementarian? See, there's complementarians and there's egalitarians. Big words, what does it mean? Complementarians believe, Southern Baptists traditionally believe, that there are certain roles, leadership roles in the church that are reserved only for men. This is why you don't see Southern Baptist female senior pastors. Then egalitarians believe, well, you're reading those passages wrong. The, the preponderance of evidence in the Bible is that women can hold any role, role in the church. Um, now, again, I'm a Southern Baptist, so I'm a complementarian. But in my opinion, this is not a core issue to Christianity. This is, this is not a gospel issue. So when I'm around someone who believes differently, we can fellowship. I can be around women who are senior pastors in other denominations. I can treat them as equals, as fellow servants of Christ, as sisters in the Lord, because they're reading the Scriptures in good faith. They're not, they're, not, they're not going against the core doctrines of the faith. They're just interpreting a secondary doctrine differently than I do. But it is true. It is true. If someone says to you, well, women can't do everything that a man can do, and you have to admit, if you're a Southern Baptist, yeah, that, that's true within the church. And we can talk about why uh, on another time. That's another issue. I didn't, I, I honestly, I did not open that can. I didn't. It's still closed. We'll talk about that another time. But what about this idea? Uh, well, can women work outside the home? That's been used in many situations. A lot of Christians have taught down through history and even some today. Well, women shouldn't work outside the home. They should be mothers. They should be wives. Well, it doesn't mean they can't be both or that they have to be married. Proverbs 31, famously, about the ideal wife. If you read that scripture three times, it talks about that ideal wife making money for her household. Three times, verse 16, verse 18, and verse 24. Yeah, yeah, but it's, that's just side jobs. That's, that's just part-time work. It would be wrong if she was the main breadwinner. God, God intended for the man to make more money than the woman. That's traditional in our culture, but it's not mandated by Scripture anywhere that I can see. I find it noteworthy that Jesus, for at least a portion of his life, 
lived off the donations of a few financially independent women. And I don't think he was less of a man for it. So let's be careful and differentiate between, well, yeah, I'm a Christian and yeah, I'm a traditional person and these are the ways I've been raised. That's one thing. But here's what the Bible actually dictates and mandates. Women are not limited in the, in the roles they can work out in the world. I will just testify before you that I, I would have no problem and have had no problem working for women as my supervisor in, in other jobs. I would have no problem voting for a woman for any elected office, and neither, I think, should you. Um, so now let's just wrap it up. Some might say, okay, yeah, I hear you, but on the whole, women would be better off without Christianity. You know, the Bible's fine, I, I get it. Yeah, the Bible, I can see where you say the Bible is not against women. But you admit the church doesn't always live up to the teachings of Scripture. So don't you think that on the whole, uh, all, things, all things considered, uh, Christianity has done more evil to women than good? Now, you and I know as Christians that Jesus through His death on the cross, the gospel message, the, the power of the Holy Spirit, He has set multiple millions of women, as well as men, free from sin and death and made them daughters of the King, brought them eternal life, abundant life on earth. So obviously our answer is a resounding no. No, no. The, the impact of, of Christianity on women is overwhelmingly positive. But if the person you're talking to hasn't yet believed in the gospel, that's not going to be a persuasive argument. So here are two things you can say. One, you can say, notice that the church from the very beginning, and even today, was majority female. Right at the beginning, in fact, the early, in the early days, the critics of Christianity used that fact against the faith. I've given you a quote in, in the notes, and this is just one of many, of a second century philosopher that said, Christians are only able to convince the foolish, the dishonorable, and the stupid, only slaves, women, and little children. He was a nice guy. Sounds like he's fun at parties. Um, why did women in the early years of the faith, why were they so attracted to the gospel? The only answer can be because in Jesus they found a new freedom, a new dignity, a new sense of personhood, a new joy, something that this world could not give them. They found life. And that's still true today. Around the world, around the world and even here in America, you go to church pews, and, and a majority of the people in those church pews are going to be female. I thank God that at First Baptist Conroe we have, I don't know what the numbers look like, but when I look out in the pews, I see what looks like an equal number of women and men, but I'm glad we have both. But the second thing, and this I think is a really persuasive argument, I think you need to say to them, okay, what do you think are the worst places in the world for women to live? And they'll probably say Saudi Arabia, Iran. Uh, North Korea. Okay, what do those places have in common that separates them from the places where women have the most rights and freedom and dignity? What's the difference? Christianity is the difference. See, the United States is not a Christian nation in the sense that you know, most people are, are, are sold out, born-again believers in Jesus, or all of our laws are based on the Scriptures. We can't say that, but... The United States was born out of a Christian heritage. And Europe, even though it's very secular today, their culture was born out of a Christian 
heritage. Those are the places where it is best to be a woman, where women enjoy the most freedoms, the most rights, the, be- the most quality of life, in places where the gospel has never really caught hold. That's the worst place in the world for a woman to live. Because apart from the message of Jesus Christ, apart from this idea that in Christ there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, all are one in Christ Jesus. Apart from this idea that, uh, that, that women have equal value before God, well, men are going to use their advantages, their physical advantages, to take advantage of women. It's just going to be that way. And so you can say, you can look at your friend and say, listen, even if you don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God, I wish you would, but even if you don't, you have to admit the lives of women have been immeasurably improved because he lived and because there are still so many people following him and trying to live out his teaching. Jesus is the best friend any woman ever had. And we can say that without doubt and beyond question. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful. We are grateful, O oh Lord, for your love for us. Lord, we're grateful for how you look out for those that the world ignores and the world mistreats, and you are there for them. Lord, that includes the, uh, the immigrant and the orphan, but also the widow. It includes the single woman and the married woman. Lord, the happily married woman, the unhappily married woman. Uh, it includes everybody. And we thank you for who you are. And Lord, forgive us for the times that we have not stood up to those who said things that weren't true and that hurt the reputation of the church. Help us to have courage to call those things out. And Lord, help us to represent you well in the days ahead uh, among the, the many people who at this point won't even consider the gospel. Help us to change their minds through love and through truth. For it's in Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen.